Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Laura. Okay, so who has heard or said the phrase, you know, it's not always about you? Ugh, that kind of hypersensitivity and let's be honest, self-absorbed worldview is so common. I fall into it far more often than I'd like to admit. Today, I'm talking to Veronica Valley about what's underneath that perception that everything in life is personal, and why it's not only a painful way to live, but how it causes a hell of a lot of unnecessary drama in our lives. In addition to being a dear friend, Veronica is a woman in long-term recovery, a therapist, a sobriety coach, founder of the Soberful Program, a host of the Soberful Podcast, and the author of three books, the most recent of which, Soberful, Uncover, A Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol, will be published on January 25th in the new year. For me, Veronica has been one of the most steady, sane, helpful voices when it comes to that murky topic of emotional sobriety. So in the conversation, we get into how emotional sobriety does and doesn't relate to abstinence from substance or process addictions, what emotional sobriety actually means, and why it's something everyone has to do, not just people in recovery, if they want healthy relationships. Uh, because no matter what, as Veronica says, the hardest thing any human being has to do is deal with other people. Veronica has genuine encouragement to share about the comfort and relief that comes from living an integrated life. And as happens every time we talk after this conversation, I felt more grounded, clear, and hopeful. I hope you enjoy it. It's so good to see you. It's so good to I, see you and be connected. So I want to talk today about emotional sobriety. Mm. And yeah, uh, it's this weird thing that I remember hearing it for the first time and I knew that, oh, that's probably important, <laughs> but I had no idea what it meant. And it's hard to define. It's hard for me to define, but... I know I've heard you talk about it, and I'm wondering if you can tell us, what is emotional sobriety? Yeah, it's a great kind of conversation that keeps deepening. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's a really ongoing conversation. And yeah, the same. I knew what getting sober meant, kind of. Like, I knew that that was stopping drinking and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Then I came right. across emotional sobriety, and it, it kind of like got under my skin because I think I knew I didn't have it and I knew it was really important. And it, it is, it's the deal. It's emotional it's sobriety deal. is the work that we need to do when we stop drinking. And I'll give you my definition of it. Emotional sobriety is two things. It is feeling comfortable in our own skin and it's having appropriate emotional responses to events. And, and that's kind of like when you first get sober and depending what methods you use, you know, you hear a lot that this, you know, we never get done with this work. We, you know, we, we do right. this forever. And I, when I heard that, I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> like, I just yeah. want to graduate. Like everyone just wants to graduate from sobriety, right? They want to do the thing mm -hmm. and then I want to graduate and get on with my life. And what they're really talking mm -hmm. about is personal development, which doesn't ever stop. Personal development doesn't ever stop because all okay. human beings are growing. But I want people to know in sobriety, there is, a, des there is a, a land that we get to 
And that's the land of feeling comfortable in our own skin and having appropriate emotional responses to events. Let's first talk about what does unsober behavior look like or emotionally unsober? Mm. It's when we take everything personally. It, you know, I, I feel like we all go through this phase, you know, when I first stopped drinking, it's like I didn't have any skin. I was very sensitive and easily, I mean, I could be devastated by like, we had plans on Friday to do something fairly casual. And then Thursday night you cancel. I could be quite devastated by that, which is an inappropriate, like I was so sensitive. It's like extreme sensitivity. And I think it's, it's taking everything personally. I think the reverse of that is the filter system that we see the world is everything is about me. Everything you do and you say and what you and what you just shared about and the action that you just took was all about me. Something about me. I just make everything about me. It feels really true. Like, you know, that when you canceled the plans, well, that's because Laura's this and she's that and she's blah, 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 blah. And, and, and she, whatever. And I make up this whole story in my head and it feels mm. really true. It just feels like it's gospel. That's, that I think is unsober. Yeah. And everyone knows what that feels like, or I definitely know what that feels like. Why do we take things personally like that? That's a really interesting question. I think it's a defining characteristic of alcoholism. And and I I use the word alcoholism to refer to the spiritual condition of alcoholism, not not really the drinking part, is there's some really defining personality characteristics. And this Mm -hmm. taking things personally, my best guess is we do that because in childhood we didn't we weren't role modeled or didn't learn skills that we needed to navigate life like to have boundaries and things like that building on that not learning the appropriate coping skills i think that it's shame there's a sense of shame mm-hmm. underneath it and if shame says that there's something wrong with me in this weird way it becomes like the spotlights on you all the time. Hmm. Like you're going to do everything you can to prove that subconsciously, Hmm. you know, you treat me this way because I'm a piece of shit Mm -hmm. and everyone knows it. Mm -hmm. It's almost this obsession with the fact, with how broken you are and how, and, and this need to feel secure when you can't, you, you, you don't have that security. Yeah, and we we create a filter system uh, that we construct in childhood based on our experiences, and and we it, 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 that's the filter system that we perceive the world by. All sobriety is 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 it can, and I'm talking like sobriety from substances is it's really yeah. two things. It's a shift in perception, mm-hmm. and and we get that shift in perception through consistency. And that sounds like quite a, not a big thing, but the shift in perception is everything because it shifts this filter system. So I'll give an example of this. I remember when I was dating my husband and uh, maybe we'd been together less than a year. I don't know. Still pretty new. And uh, we had plans for a Friday night date. I think we we're going to go for dinner. I don't think it was anything massive, whatever. And he called yeah. very last minute and said, there's this... Um, there was this thing on at the college. I really need to go to a speaker. I'm really sorry. You know, can we postpone? And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, no, I get it. No problem. Found myself, you know, loose end. And I think I recall going to a, a meeting that I really loved and, and we saw each other. So they had a lovely weekend. You were sober at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, like seven years sober. And um, yeah. I remember come the Sunday night, I thought I had that moment where I was like, oh, my God. I, what used to happen in that scenario was cancelling a date with me at the last minute meant that you didn't love me. So I would punish you all weekend. I would be distanced 
and aloof, but I would not specifically say what was why what I felt. I would just my behavior would be very off. Mm-hmm. That communicated to you that you needed to kind of grovel or <laughs> turn cartwheels to make that up to me so that I felt better and I would ruin our whole weekend. And I had this moment where I was like, I didn't do that. And I didn't even think of doing that. I was like, you know, maybe if we did had theater tickets to a great show, I'd have probably been more disappointed, but I, it was totally, it wasn't about me. I totally got it. I did something else. We had a lovely time. And that's what I mean about the shift in perception. And that is everything. I've ruined so many relationships like that in the past. Oh yeah. Shift in perception changes every single thing that you do say, encounter every relationship. When you were talking about that, it strikes me, and I want to say this in the kindest way, but it strikes me as just this very immature view. Mm. Because kids think that. Kids Mm. are naturally self-centered. They think that they, they really can't differentiate at a certain point. I suppose another way to say it is it's not, is nothing is personal, like in the one of the four agreements. So explain if nothing's personal, say you, because I want to give an example of kind of push shotness a little bit. Say you, say your husband uh, said he was going to cancel plans with you. And you, you were fine with that. But then what you found out later was that he went out with another woman. So he lied to you. Where does emotional sobriety come into that? And how, how would we see something like that as not personal? Uh, so uh, that's an interesting question. So I would, if that had been the, uh, had happened, of course, the, an appropriate emotional response to that would be to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be angry. Those are appropriate emotional responses to that event. Yeah. What we don't want to do is stay stuck in that. And a, an emotional sober response to that would be all of those feelings and you have revealed to me who you are. And mm-hmm. that is devastating. I believed you to be someone else and now you have shown me who you are and I will believe who you are. There is no rationalization or explanation for this. This is sad. This is unfortunate. And Laura, to be honest, you're fucking lost. <laughs> well, right. Then there's, <laughs> then there's that. Yeah. But, but nothing in there, no, nothing in what you said is this is about me because there's something wrong with me. Yes. And again, that's the interpretation I always used to make. Oh my God, mm. he did that because I wasn't thin enough, pretty enough, good enough whatever. Instead, I would see that as like, that is so sad because we had such a nice thing going on here. And clearly you have some stuff going on where like lying and and being deceitful and and something about getting, you you need to have attention from women. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm glad I saw this now. That's about you. And, and, you know, again, I wouldn't like skip off like an hour later, I would be hurt and crushed and disappointed and angry for a little bit of time. And I would move through that. I would take that away and and probably work on that and look at like, okay, so how, why did I not see that earlier? Right. And is this a pattern? (laughs) Have I done this before? So emotional, back to just the baseline Mm -hmm. of emotional sobriety, does it have anything to do with abstinence? from substances or drugs or process addictions? I, I, yeah, I'm going to have to say yes. I don't think you, I think you can be emotionally sober and still drink alcohol. It's about the abuse factor. Right. Because going back to what you were saying about um, that this behavior is actually very childish, it, That you're right. When people stop drinking, we are very raw and childlike in our emotions and and we're emotional teenagers. And the reason for that is we have very quickly defaulted to alcohol as the fixer of anything that's unpleasant or uncomfortable or difficult. So we just have, we haven't developed skills to deal with frustration, anger, disappointment, blah, blah, blah. We have just used alcohol as the solution to those things. 
widely speaking, emotional sobriety takes up bandwidth. And so we need all of our bandwidth. And also the other thing is the consequences of emotional sobriety are so rewarding that what chemicals can bring me just really pales. Like it's not like it pales into insignificance compared to what I can create organically. So why would I bother with a toxic substance? Yeah. Is honesty part of emotional sobriety? For sure. Right. I mean, for sure. And honesty, I think is all is evolving. You know, that's, do you know what Jahari's window is? Yeah. Explain it, it though. So Jahari's window, um, you kind of need a visual, but it's basically, if you imagine a rectangle that's divided up into four squares and we have, this is what I call process work. This is the journey of sobriety is all four squares are about self-awareness. So we all have, um, the first square would be known to self, known to others. So for us, it would be like, I know you're in recovery. I know you're a mom. I know you're a writer, blah, 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 blah. Then the next square would be known to self, but not known to others. So that might be like years ago when you really wanted to write a book, but you didn't want to, you weren't going to talk about it. it, You know, yeah, like you knew it, but you weren't telling people that, for example. And we all have things that we don't talk about because for various feelings, various reasons, some of it's shame, fear, all of that kind of stuff. Then we have another box, which is known to others, but not known to self, which is always interesting. And we all have people in our lives where, oh, if so-and-so comes along, you know, they're going to do X, Y, and Z and, but they can't see it, but we have things that we can't see in ourselves. So a friend, my best friend, yes, blinds, basically our blind spots. That's it. And then we all have the last corner is, um, not known to self, not known to others. And that's, and, and the, the work of being human is to shrink three of those boxes down to as small as possible. So we are known to self, known to others, which is about transparency. That doesn't mean like we still have privacy. We still want to, you don't want to completely, we still need privacy, but it's, that's gross. That's, that's. But you're not hiding anything. Yes. You're not keeping secrets. Yeah. yeah. When, when the, the other box is like a out of balance, you know, that's when we're living dual lives. Like how we show up in the world is very different to who we are inside, for example. I don't think you have to have a visual. It's very easy to see those four Mm. aspects of Jahari's window. And if you think about the one field, the one square expanding to fill the rest, I always think of there's one version of me. Mm. There's just one version of me in the world. And it's not that everyone gets the same version and tons of people don't know. Most people don't know a lot about me, but I'm not keeping anything from them. It's just a matter yeah. of, like you said, privacy. I, I have, I choose to, cause you don't want intimacy with everybody, mm. but that doesn't mean you, you're not going to think something that's so outrageously wrong about me, you know, because I present as opposed to drinking when I was drinking, there were it was so much unknown to self and unknown to others. Yeah. And that's when we're lost. That's when we've lost ourselves. So let's talk about like emotions. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about emotional sobriety. So people get on these, when we are, especially in the first year of sobriety, we, we have these powerful energies of emotion often come up and out and, you know, our hormones are regulating our brains realigning, I suppose, or, or it's, I always think of it as becoming unthawed you're just kind of thawing out and it feels like this, it almost feels like you're being attacked, like this onslaught of energy and emotion and that you're just kind of riding a roller coaster. Um, I want to ask from a certain angle, like this can be scary for people who are around you mm. when you're experiencing these highs and lows and it can put a lot of, it can cause people to feel like they can't really trust you or maybe that you're more that you're just unpredictable 
So what do people who are going into their first year of sobriety or the people who live with them or around them need to think about as they're going through this rebalancing process, recalibration process that I think it's the first sort of part of emotional sobriety? I think in the first year of sobriety, it's just about finding your feet and creating a foundation. We are so all over the place, aren't we? I mean, I can look back. I mean, the stuff I used to come out with, you know, I know it's that rawness, you know, it's, it's like going back into the world as a newborn baby, but in an adult body and just feeling so utterly clueless how to navigate and be in the world. And my brain keep wanting to default to alcohol to fix it. And, and, and it, I'm not going to do that, but not knowing how do I, how do I fix this? I mean, yeah. I, I really, I felt, and I know a lot of people I've worked with have felt like this. It's just like, we're so vulnerable. So how do you think about emotions? Like what's a helpful way to look at emotions? Mm-hmm. Emotions are programmed into us. They're in our DNA and there's some debate about them, but it's like fear, for example, is programmed into our DNA. We couldn't live we wouldn't live if we didn't have fear because we wouldn't, fear is, forces us to make life-saving decisions. Um, right. Uh, disgust, I think is another one. Joy. Anger. Anger. And there's a debate about a couple more. But they're all, right. those are emotions. And the thing is about emotions is we feel them physically in our bodies. They are physical sensations that trigger thoughts. And there's a sort of, a circuit then between thoughts and emotion and the fe- these emotions that we f- experience in our bodies. So they feed yep. off of each other. The the you know the fear or the anger gets more intense, and then the thoughts will get more intense. But the thoughts will get more intense, and that actually triggers more of a physical response. Feelings are our subjective response to the emotions. So. If you were at work and you knew that a lot of people were going to get fired and you could be one of them, the appropriate emotional response would be to feel fear, maybe anger as well. And you would feel that in your body. The feelings you have about that, for example, this always happens to me. I just know I'm going to like my boss doesn't like me. My wife's going to leave me. Those are subjective feelings based on your history, your personal experience, your limiting beliefs that are responding to that emotion that you're experiencing. Starting out, these emotions can feel very overwhelming. How do you look at them or help people work with those energies? I want to give people some idea of how to work with those emotional energies. So this is one of the most helpful tools that I have found And it's very simple. So when, observe yourself with curiosity, not judgment. So observe what's happening in your body, that I'm having a response here, whatever it is. I think it's anger, it might be fear, it might be both, whatever. And then ask yourself the question, what is the story I'm telling myself about this? That's the most powerful tool that I have found in that it just, and, and because there's a real pull, you know, there's a real pull with those physical and, and the thoughts. And that question kind of cuts through it. What is the yep. story I'm telling myself about this? And to ask it of someone else or to ask it of yourself, then we can begin to, well, I'm telling myself a story. I'm, I'm well, it's happening because I'm not good enough. And because it, is that true? No, no, actually half the department is getting laid off because they lost <sighs> half their business. It's really sad and unfortunate and it's appropriate to feel angry and upset about that. But this is nothing to do with you being good enough or not. This is one of the primary things I learned from Buddhism. Uh, They call it Shempa, the hook that you get. Mm. So there's that initial energetic impulse in the body, anger, fear, jealousy, whatever. But then there's the Shenpa, which is the hook that starts spinning you into the story. And that's Mm. where the suffering is. Mm. We usually don't know that that's happening. I mean, this is very, it's fast and it's very subconscious. So my, as you know, because we talked a lot about this while I was going through it, the, my stories around 
romantic relationships and what I would perceive as rejection from someone and the almost instantaneous spiral that would Mm -hmm. happen inside of me because of all these stories that for, I didn't even realize that I had them. It just feels like torture. It just feels like pain. It feels Mm -hmm. like being annihilated. That's what it felt like to me. But it it also feels like truth though, right? It feels like it's a fact. No, I, it feels like fact and it's so intense and obviously trauma really plays a part in this because it can send you right into that state even, even more quickly. I've had that feeling where you're swallowed up into it. You're in the hole, you're gone. And so would you say that the first step is just knowing that there, there are stories, like there might be a story in here and actually the story is causing you suffering. I I really like what you said about the Buddhist, the hook. When we ask ourselves that question, what is the story I'm telling myself? And we can begin to see the bullshit. But sometimes when someone holds a mirror up and we, it, it, it collapses quite easily. It, it, we can sometimes see like, oh God, this, th- th- how ridiculous, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they're so seductive. It's kind of fascinating how our brains work that way. I love that you say they're seductive because it's, there's this vision of, of like this, the siren, <laughs> you know, this mm-hmm. come here, come here, mm-hmm. come here. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and before you know it, you're being pulled, like this gravitational force is pulling you in this direction. And it's always very familiar. The familiar is the seduction because it, there's a, the familiarity is very comfortable. I think that the, a lot of the weight of the seduction is in the familiar. The most obvious way for everybody is in romantic relationships. That's where it's most pronounced. But you're right. It happens in friendships and all sorts of different things as well. Um, but it, and it's all the, the, the thing is, it's all about patterns. I, I remember there was a meme on Facebook. I saw it recently where someone posted. It's like, I don't care what you say or what you do. What's the pattern? Like, what's the pattern? And mm. I, that's like as a therapist, it's like there's always a pattern. You know, when I've had clients like with the philandering husband, it, you know, she'll say, well, you know, he's promised, he's promised, he's sworn on the Bible, he's, you know, he's started exercising, he's had two sessions with his ther- therapist, I know it's different. I'm like, and what's the pattern? <laughs> because you've, mm-hmm. this has happened before, right? You know, about every nine months he promises and, and does like three weeks of intense activity on something. But what's the pattern? The pattern in everyone's behavior We'll tell you everything you need to know. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. So we're saying that there are patterns, and then we're saying also that people can change, that Mm. they can change. So what what's the difference? What happens for people that are able to change? So, which is emotional sobriety is, um, mm-hmm. it, it's the, it's Johari's window. It's that we have expanded the, the corner that is known to self, uh, known to others. 
But I think it, 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 there's some key things to emotional sobriety. And this is, for me personally, what changed my life is um, these are the, the key elements to it is you and, and Brené Brown's work demonstrates this. Um, mm -hmm. And she said it many times, you have to have cast iron boundaries in order to be happy and successful. You cannot be, you, you just cannot be happy unless you have good boundaries. So we have to specifically learn how to have boundaries and go through the process of um, applying them, which can be messy and a bit scary and all those kind of things. We have to be able to deal with our resentments, which is the, what's key to that is the resentment work is key is um, that's what shifts our perception that what other people do is personal. We have yes. to be able to change our limiting beliefs, which is the story that we tell ourselves. And, and this is work that all human beings have to do. All, all human beings are called to this work. It's just most people don't answer the call. But when you have a substance abuse problem, it forces you. It, it kind of, your back's against the wall. And this is laid out in front of you in many different ways that it's not just stopping drinking, you're going to have to do some work, um, which is why we are the luckiest. Okay. I love that you say that. I always, I always love when you say that this is work that all people have to do. Mm. Back to, let's, let's just go a little bit deeper in each of those. So boundaries, without having a whole discussion on boundaries, mm. I think a lot of people think that boundaries are going to keep people further away. And if I have boundaries... I'm going to ruin my relationships. So what do you say to that? Okay, so that's, uh, so in my book, I write about the five pillars mm -hmm. of sobriety. One of them is balance. And actually balance and boundaries go hand in hand. And you can't have one without the other. So keeping other people away or that's not a boundary. That, that, that isn't. Look, I come across people so every so often who, who say, oh, I've got really, really good boundaries. They don't. What they have is a steel wall with barbed wire fence around themselves. That's not <laughs> yeah, a boundary. Right. right. So uh, boundaries just keep the good in and the bad out. And they manage my energy and they improve all of my relationships. Like I, I am so appreciative of people with really good boundaries. Like I, oh, would, me too. I, I, I love a no. I'm really happy with a no, really happy because then I know where I stand. I can move on and go on to plan B. What I cannot stand is a wishy-washy yes because I kind of suspect it's a wishy-washy yes and I'm not sure if you're going to do the thing or maybe you will, maybe you won't. Or you I don't, don't give me that bullshit. So boundaries and balance go hand in hand and it balances about balancing our needs, which we're all trying to meet our needs and, and our, when our circumstances change as they will, how we manage and meet our needs is is going to change. We have to have both of those things at the same time. So what, what you were describing is not, a, that's not a boundary. Boundaries are good for everybody and they are nurturing for relationships and they, they, they benefit us and they benefit everybody else around us. And I, I, you know, we say to my clients, if you do one piece of work, like just one thing, we'll just work on your boundaries that it will revolutionize your life. Well, you can't really work on boundaries without working on everything else that you're talking about because it mm. touches everything. If you, if you run into a place where you're stuck with a certain relationship where you feel very trampled on, you have a resentment, say, you're taking it all personally, you're already touching on resentments. I can see why you would recommend boundaries because they touch everything. It's impossible mm -hmm. to work on boundaries and not know more about yourself, mm -hmm. not have a lot of inquiry about what do I want? I mean, that's, that's what is, is underneath. What do I want and what do I need, right? What the hardest thing that any human has, being has to do is deal with other people. Dealing <laughs> right. with other people right. is just hard, right? It, that's, yeah. And we need tools to deal with other people because... Other people show up in the world based on their history, their story, their trauma, their limiting beliefs, blah, blah, blah. And that comes out in their behavior and in their patterns. Dealing with other people is the biggest life challenge, I think, that any of us face. So, for example, going back to something we were saying earlier, 
I was raised and maybe you were as well, like as a woman, my mm-hmm. don't make a fuss. My feelings aren't important. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What other people think of you is the most important. Those were the things I absorbed. Behaving on those belief systems was really damaging to me. Now that I have good boundaries in my life, and it took years, I really don't have patterns of relational trouble. Mm. I have things that come up here and things that come up there, but it's much more peaceful. So has that been your experience? And is that your experience with other emotionally sober people? Yeah, you're right. Boundaries will transform all of our relationships. It's amazing. So resentments are the story that we tell ourselves about what um, we think was done to us. I call resentments the free drunk. So the the, free drink, the free drunk, the free drunk. Oh God. Yeah. The free drunk. And this is why there's no, in the big book of AA, it talks about resentments being the number one offender. I don't think a truer word has been said. Um, They are the free drunk. So on Monday, my boss really does says or does something that makes me really angry and resentful. And I spend all week having that rent space in my head. I'm going over in that conversation. I'm planning revenge. I'm just like, that's when we know when we have a resentment, is it rent space in our head and we're planning revenge. And then it gets to Friday and I've been sober six weeks, three months, whatever. I don't want to drink. And I've had an awful week. My boss has been awful. This terrible thing that they said to me. And then on Friday night, someone says, do you want to go to cocktail hour? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I will have a cocktail because I freaking deserve, like I I freaking deserve it. Like I have had a terrible week. People have been terrible to me and it's not fair. It is not fair. I'm a really lovely person and I try really hard and nobody sees that. And I'm telling, and and, and, uh, I have seven cocktails and you know what? None of that's my fault. That is not my fault. That's what my, the reason I had seven cocktails and got drunk is because of what my boss said on Monday. So resentments are the fuel to a free drunk. Um, And that's why it's, they're so crucial for sober people to get to, there's some specific skills to deal with resentments, such freedom, because it's all about what we rent space to in our minds. I have far more interesting things to think about than what, my boss said on Monday. I know, but no, that, that is when you were describing, you know, what resentments feel like and how we know we have them. I I go, I cringed a little cause I know it's like the easiest, easiest thing to do to blame someone. We don't have to, to look at ourselves. We don't have to take responsibility and so on the free drunk. Yeah. It is very intoxicating. Talk about seductive. And resentments are very seductive because they allow me to have my blame story. And and they also keep us stuck because there's no growth there. You know, it's just she did this, he did that. And and what we do is we we co-opt other people into it, right? Like, well, what did your boss say? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell. And I go into the whole store and everyone's like, oh, and that kind of like fuels it. We're all fueling it. And I'm like feeling more, you know, it's the seduction of self-righteous anger. It's so seductive. It's a weird feeling. We want it, but but it doesn't feel good, but we want it. it it's it's a really It feels strange. better than feeling whatever it is that we, I think, whatever's behind it in the moment. I think that's what it is. It's a lot easier to be angry than to be sad, to admit that we're afraid, that we're not going to get what we want. Yeah. One of the methods I teach people in my programs to deal with resentment is based on rational emotive behavioral therapy, REBT. And Mm -hmm. the way that it processes, one of my clients calls it the resentment grinder. It's like a sausage grinder. Like you put it in and out the other end, something else comes out. And it's very tied to the limiting beliefs. Resentments are very tied to the limiting beliefs and the story that we tell ourselves. There's a strong relationship there. And it's like, it's easier for me to just have my story. It's easier if you change. 
it's easier if you're wrong and you apologize or change or whatever, then everything would be fine. Resentments are also based on, I just want everybody to be the way I want them to be. Like, don't you all see how much happier it would be if you did (laughs) things the way I want them to be done and you said Mm -hmm. what I want them to be said. And the, the, the funniest thing about resentments is, and this is very common, and this is such a massive shift in perception, is we have reoccurring resentments against people we know very well. And we know how they are. We know their patterns. We know how they show up. We know how they're going to behave in most situations. Yet we wake up and we think today they'll be completely reasonable and sane and they will say (laughs) the right thing and do the right thing. And then we're angry and resentful at them, despite knowing them for decades and knowing that they're they're always going to say or respond in this way. And and they're not capable of giving us what we need. Freedom really came for me, when I began to see, so for example, with my relationship with my mother, I would be constantly resentful and angry at her because today she didn't become an appropriate, sane, reasonable person. Right. At, at, when I was able to just accept that's how she is and I know how she's going to behave and I'm not, my whole life changed. It was incredible. That's kind of, and, and that's where they're quite amusing. It's like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? This is crazy. I know it seems so obvious when you mm. when you say it like that. But we're, it's almost like we're waiting for them to do the thing that we know they're actually going to do so that we can keep our story. But they're self-serving because th- that's th- that's what, what I we mean. get what we get from that is then then I am justified in drinking, doing drugs, spending money I don't have, overeating, whatever it is. I I am justifying. That's that's the paradox of them is that I don't want to shift this dynamic because they justify me in my behavior. I can keep doing this thing because it's not my fault. My number one hint that I'm getting, I'm going in a bad direction, an unhealthy direction is when I start nursing a resentment about someone or something. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it can get you to a place of causing such pain that you do. It does require relief, right? Eventually Mm -hmm. it does require Mm -hmm. some kind of relief. Not just that it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, annoying. It's actually quite painful. Just one last thing about that is what it comes down to is I can't change other people. I have to have the uh, ability to feel better about myself, regardless of what anyone does or doesn't do. And that's the key to freedom is I, I get to choose my response. I, I can't, you know, I get to choose my response to this so I can feel okay. Yeah. And that's, that's something you, you talk about a lot. And it was actually one of, one of my questions coming up is emotional sobriety. I believe you might not have said these exact words, but you talk about it as being responsible for your experience. And that, what you just said, owning really your own peace, your own freedom, your own happiness, your own well-being, despite what what goes on around you or what comes at you or who acts in what way is being responsible for your experience. Mm-hmm. What else does it what else does it mean? It means yeah, it, it, it being emotional sobriety is about being responsible for the experience that I want to have. And I, I want to say there's a caveat to that because it, it depends on how much privilege we have for sure. Yes. Our, yes. you know, that differs for everybody. But it's that, you know, Lots of people come into sobriety with some very bad and dysfunctional relationships. And the belief system that if those people changed, they would feel better and it's the other way around. We, we, we actually have the tools. The personal development work is the tools so that we, boundaries, dealing with resentments, limiting beliefs, all of, when I do that work, I feel comfortable in my own skin. And then what happens is, when things bounce off me, like I, it's not very often, every so often I get a resentment and I need to kind of look at it. But most, after doing this for two decades, I, I really don't interpret other people's behavior personally very often. I, I just don't have that sensitivity anymore. And, and that 
that's why I'm comfortable in my own skin. And, and there's no, that's the destination. There's nothing better in the whole world than that feeling. Yeah. I, I wouldn't give this up for anything. One of the things in your book, one of the five pillars is process. Can you talk about why that's a pillar, why that's one of the, the most important things? What process is and is it internal, external, both? Everything is process. We are always in processes. So um, process work is, is really understanding our patterns and understanding how we were formed, why we became, why do I have these feelings? Why do I have these experiences? Why do I feel that way when X, Y, and Z happens? It's understanding that because our past shows up in our present every single day. And some of that is unhelpful and we can change it and, and we change it through process work. And process, it really means it's not like a, we have a conversation and you're enlightened and everything changed. It's like, it happens by inches. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, like we were, we were saying about when I first heard the word emotional sobriety, I was like, I had this physical, like I had fear, but I also had intrigue and, you know, and it took years to understand fully what that meant and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's the, it's just layers. Process is just going through the layers. It's healing our past. It's, it's getting to a place of peace and acceptance so that I don't carry this burden around with me. And everybody has to do process work because everybody has to understand themselves. What I think it's one of the Greek philosophers, I can't remember which one, maybe Plato, that says something like a life lived unexamined is not a life worth living. And mm -hmm. it, it's really about observing ourselves with curiosity, not judgment. It's the examination. That's what you're talking mm. about. This sort of commitment to examining the ongoing, never ending curiosity of why we are the way we are, how we can undo things that aren't helpful. Process work is, is inextricably linked to growth and growth is the reward. It's the pot, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for doing all of this work in the first place. I fairly early on made the connection with, you know, when you get sober and I had to learn how to have boundaries and I was doing some journaling and step work and blah, blah, blah. It felt like work and it didn't, you know, I just kind of thought, yeah, I kind of felt like it was necessary, but I very quickly saw a connection between things sort of shifted and my life improved in ways that were very tangible. And I saw that connection with when I put some effort into this, some really good stuff happens for me and I'm all about the good stuff. So I want to ask about your book though, because this will air shortly before it's out. I, it's time. Mm. It's coming out 20, January 25th. Yeah. January 25th. What I wanted to do was provide the how for people. It's a book written by a therapist, but I hope in a way that's really easy to understand. And it really it mostly is. lays out a program, the five pillars of sobriety. And it's basically these, you do these things. <laughs> you will be able to stop drinking. Alcohol will no longer be an issue and your life. And, and, and it's not just about, it, 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 that's the 10%. The 90% is, and you will expand your life, you will be comfortable in your own skin, you will be able to take it's personal development work. And it's broken that down into these five pillars mm. th so that people can practice. There's a little bit at the beginning about changing our, you know, our perception of what alcohol is and, and talk a little bit about the mummy needs wine culture and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. it's really I wanted people to have the like, I see lots of people like I'm sober, but now what I, I don't I'm sort of yes. floundering a bit. I don't understand why I feel it's the how. So it's, it's a program and, and yes. it can stand alone or it can accompany, you know, if you're in the 12 steps or women for sobriety or whatever, it's really the, the, the therapeutic work. And, um, there's lots of journaling prompts through it to help you mm -hmm. kind of understand, you know, and shift perception and all that kind of thing. It's really, really well done. I think it's very hard to create a book 
like yours and have it be as engaging as yours is. And I think that's just, like I said, your, your publisher did a great job of letting your voice come through. And so it is very accessible and, um, and for anyone, it's really for anyone. That's also what I like. It's not, it, it feels modern, but also rooted in just ancient wisdom and, and what we understand about modern science and trauma and psychology. Yeah, lot, lots of people said that. It really is a personal development book for anybody. You know, if you're just getting started, there's stuff to just get started with. If you want to go deeper, there's, there's stuff for that as well. So I'm really, I'm really pleased with it. I'm, I'm always amazed that I can write anything that's semi-intelligent because writing is really hard for me. So it's called Soberful. Soberful. And- uh, uncover a sustainable, fulfilling life free of alcohol. And everyone go out and buy our book. She's at, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at soberful.com, um, on Facebook. I have a group soberful. Uh, if you just put Google my name, Veronica Valley, you can find out more information there. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Mm-hmm.